Have you ever been asked to do something that you knew you were not qualified to do? I have. <laughs> if you have, then you know how uncomfortable that can be, uh, especially, especially when there are other people involved. In fact, I don't think there are many things more awkward in life than having to do something you're totally unqualified to do in front of other people. I'll never forget my first day in high school band class. We walked in and sat down and the band director instructed us to take out our instruments and to prepare to play the song on the sheet music that was on the stands in front of us. And I played the saxophone. So I was sitting on the row, of course, with all the other saxophonists. And there was this new kid sitting right next to me who had just moved to the area from out of state. The rest of us, for the most part, uh, knew each other because we'd come up through middle school band together and we've been playing our instruments really since the fifth grade. But when the band director raised his baton and we began to play, it sounded like someone was strangling a llama right next to me. It was like the most painfully hideous sounds were coming out of this kid's saxophone and and he was terribly embarrassed, and we were terribly embarrassed for him. And it went on for several minutes until finally the band director stopped us and said, okay, hold on. He said, let's, uh, let's try this. Let's do some warm-up exercises first. And so we did that for a few minutes. And then the director said, okay, let's give it another go. And then we began to play. But this time, it was even worse than before. And so finally... Mercifully, after about 15 minutes into this, the band director stopped us again and he asked the boy next to me, he said, son, is there something wrong with your instrument? To which the kid replied, well, I, I don't think so. It's, it's brand new. And so the band director said, okay, well, how long have you been playing the saxophone? And the kid literally looked at his watch and said, about 15 minutes. He just moved to the area. He knew nothing about band or playing an instrument, but his parents, who knew nothing about it either, thought it would be good for him, so they bought him a saxophone and signed him up for the orchestra. And I'll just tell you, after the band director explained to this kid that he wouldn't be able to stay in the orchestra that year until he you know, had some outside lessons and learned to play his instrument first, that kid was easily as relieved as the rest of us to find out that he would not be playing in the band that year. Right. Because otherwise he's being instructed to do something that he was not qualified to do. And it was terribly awkward for him and for everyone around him. And look, that's really the way it is for all of us, isn't it? No one wants to have to do something, especially in front of other people, that we are not qualified to do. OK, so. What does that have to do with this sermon? Well, it has everything to do with this sermon because as Christians, we've been instructed by Jesus to make disciples of Christ throughout our lives by proclaiming the gospel. And yet most of us believe we're unqualified to do that. So we don't. We simply don't do what Jesus instructed us to do because we don't think we can. In 2012, LifeWay Research found that 80% of Americans who attend church one or more times a month believe they have a personal responsibility to share their faith. And yet, despite that conviction, 61% have not told another person about how to become a Christian in the previous six months. 
61% of American Christians as of 2012 are not sharing the gospel with others. And in the Jesus Film Project's own, uh, they did a multi-generational survey. It was a huge survey on evangelism. When Christians were asked what prevented them from sharing their faith, by far and away, the number one answer that was given was fear. They're too afraid to share their faith because they feel too ill-equipped to share their faith. They don't believe they're qualified to tell others about Jesus. Now listen, that's the real pandemic. Not that people are dying from illness, but that they're dying without Jesus. And you know why? Because we're too afraid to tell them. This is one of the most successful lies ever perpetrated on the body of Christ by our enemy. The idea that you are somehow not qualified to share your faith with other people. But listen, if you're a born-again believer and follower of Jesus Christ, if that supernatural transformation has occurred in your life, then you tell me, who is more qualified than you to tell an unbeliever about who Jesus is and what he's done in your own life? Right When it comes to sharing the story about what Jesus has done for you, you are the most qualified person on the planet to tell that story. And yet we've allowed ourselves to become convinced that we're not up to the task because the enemy of our souls specializes in accusing Christians of not being worthy, of not being good enough or talented enough or skilled enough or justified enough to tell our own stories to other people. So instead of listening to the voice of the Spirit of God who says, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, instead we listen to the voice of the accuser who says, hey, you can't do that. You're not good enough. You're not gifted enough. You're, you're not worthy enough. You're not experienced enough. You're not justified. You have, you have no right to tell that story to other people because you're too much of a hypocrite. And we listen. We listen to all those lies until we actually believe that we're not qualified to tell the one story that we are uniquely qualified to tell to the very people who desperately need to hear it. Okay, Lucifer is referred to as Satan 52 times throughout Scripture and another maybe 30 or so times by other names. And the word Satan, is Satan in the ancient Hebrew language, was originally not a, a proper name for Lucifer. It was actually a job description. It means accuser, literally. That, that's one, his one job. It's, it's all that he does. Day and night, he accuses the people of God of not being worthy or able to do what God has already called and equipped us to do. And the thing is, we've bought the lie, hook, line, and sinker, to the point that the majority of Jesus' followers now refuse to tell other people about him. It's crazy. And yet that has become our normal today, hasn't it? If we're being honest, I think for most of us, it's more common to go through a day without telling someone about Jesus than it is to tell someone about him every day of your life. 
Even though telling people about Jesus should be really a natural part of our daily lives, and yet in the modern church it has become the exception, right? We, we remember the days when we actually share Jesus with other people as special days. You know why? Because they're so few and far between. When actually telling people about him should be such a routine part of the rhythm of our lives from one day to the next that it flows out of us naturally, as naturally as talking about the weather or sports or politics or family or work or whatever it is you're used to talking about, right? These things that you're not embarrassed to talk about because you've experienced them firsthand, first of all, so you feel qualified and confident in talking about them. Things like the weather, or sports, or politics, or family, or work, or whatever it is you're used to talking about. But if you've experienced Jesus firsthand, then tell me why isn't it as natural for us to talk about him as it is for us to talk about the weather? Well, it's because we've believed the lie that we're not really qualified. We're not good enough. We, we can't because of the things we've done, how we've lived our lives, how, listen, how we still make a mess of things, right? Who am I to tell someone else about how Jesus can give them a new life when I can't even get my own life together? You understand that's the voice of the accuser in your life. It's the great distraction that he's been using to great effect against God's people for a very long time. Why? to keep you from sharing the gospel story and how it relates to your story. Because sharing the gospel and what that gospel is producing in your life makes the enemy very nervous because of what happens when you combine those two stories together, as we're going to see in our story today. And here's a little hint. There's supernatural power when you combine the gospel story with your story. It's like a chemical reaction that causes an explosion of power in the spiritual atmosphere surrounding those conversations because in that moment, all of the distractions that keep people from confronting the truth are cleared away. They are. Because the accuser is powerless against the truth of the gospel and the truth of what that gospel is doing in your own life. He, he cannot stand up to the truth. And so as you proclaim those truths together, listen, even in simple conversations, as naturally as you talk about the weather, there is a supernatural effect that reverberates throughout eternity, as we're going to see as we turn today to our story in Revelation chapter 12. That's our text this morning. If you want to turn there with me, Revelation 12, we'll begin by reading verses 7 through 9. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. One of the problems uh, that people often run into when reading Revelation is the misconception that the entire book is concerning future events when actually it's a combination of events that have already happened, those that are happening now, and those that have yet to happen. So it helps to understand when you're reading passages in Revelation which it is you're dealing with. And in this story we're reading today, there are allusions to all three, past events, current events, and future events. And so as this story begins, 
Michael and his angels are fighting against the dragon and his angels in heaven. That's an important detail. And we know from Daniel chapters 10 and 12 that Michael was the guardian prince of Israel, while Jude, uh, in verse 9 of his letter, tells us that Michael was the archangel. So Michael, the archangel, and the angels under his command are locked in a battle with the dragon, or Satan, and the fallen angels that he commands. This takes place halfway, uh, the halfway point of the seven-year period that Daniel describes as the time of trouble. He says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen uh, since there was a nation till that time, but at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, Daniel 12.1. So this is a look forward to the time of the great tribulation when Satan and his fallen angels try to regain the positions they were originally cast out of when he and a third of the angels who were with him were previously thrown out of heaven before the dawn of humankind, which is referenced in Revelation 12.4, also Ezekiel 28.14-16, through 16, among other places, because although he and a third of the angels had already been hurled down to the earth from heaven, right? There are four instances in scripture where Satan and his angels are demoted. When he's hurled down from heaven to the air, he's described as the prince of the air. Then here, hurled down from heaven to earth, then uh, chained up in the pit, and then uh, finally uh, into the lake of fire, okay? So he and a third of the angels have already been hurled down from, earth to, uh, from heaven to earth. We know that was originally from passages like uh, Job 1.12, uh, 1 Kings 22, 21, and Zechariah 3, 1, to name a few that describe after that initial casting out of heaven the fact that Satan and his angels still had access to heaven, okay, up until this point, right? So everything that happens in the spirit realm is reflected in the natural realm. You know that. Everything that happens in the spirit realm is reflected in the natural realm. So what's happening there, there is a reflection of it, a reflex, if you will, happening in the natural realm. And we're going to see that as we continue reading here. So let's go to verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So again, this looks forward to the time when Satan and his angels are kicked out of heaven for good, where his accusations against the people of God before God finally come to an end. But listen, we know that day hasn't come yet, right? As Satan continues to bring accusation against us day and night, because, of course, that is the only power that he has against us, to lie about us and to us, because he knows that he cannot defeat you with the truth. You know that, right? So his only hope is to convince you to believe a lie about yourself. But listen, it's nothing more than a distraction. It's a smokescreen. The fact is, if you were as unqualified, as unworthy, as unable to be the man or woman God created you to be as the enemy wants you to believe, then he wouldn't bother with you in the first place. No, the entire reason he lies to you to begin with is because he's scared to death of what will happen when you finally figure out just how valuable to the kingdom of God you actually are. I saw this quote from an unknown author the other day. It said, the enemy is only attacking you because you're valuable to God. 
Thieves don't break into empty houses. You're important. Okay, you're valuable to God and to the kingdom of God and the enemy knows it. That's why he tells lies about you and to you to try and convince you that you're not. The thing is, we've bought the lie. We've bought the lie to the point that we've stopped exercising the authority and power of Christ that we have over the accuser in our lives and in the lives of others. Look, the Apostle John made no mistake about what he saw and what he heard. He said, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Now listen, that not only happens at the end of the last great battle, but it happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus conquered death in the grave. And it continues to happen today every time a lost soul is brought back to life by the truth, the truth that you carry inside of yourself, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the redeeming work that it has wrought in your own life. See, all you have to do to perpetuate that supernatural work of Christ in the lives of those who are lost is simply share it with them. You understand that that's how you exercise the authority of Christ over the enemy in your own life and in the lives of others by simply speaking the truth. The truth about who Jesus is and who you are in him. And look, the accuser has already been defeated and he knows it. Sometimes you just have to remind him that you know it too. Right? Well, how do you do that? That's what we're about to find out in verses 11 and 12, where we will spend the rest of our time today. Let's read it together. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So the devil increases his activity on earth against the people of God as his time here grows increasingly short. And how then is he ultimately defeated and conquered once and for all? Well, John tells us by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The blood of the lamb the gospel, that's his story. And by the word of their testimony, that's your story. I've told you this before, but it bears repeating because as important as his story and your story both are, it's important to remember that those are two different stories. You understand, you can share your testimony with someone, which you should do often, by the way, but you can share your testimony with someone, what Jesus has done for you in your life, and walk away from that conversation believing that you've shared the gospel with them when all you've actually done is shared your story, not his. And so as important as your story is, what Jesus has done for you in your life, as important as that is, lost people need to hear his story too. They need to understand who he is, how he came, why he came, to whom he came for, and what he did when he came. You see, that's the power of his story, the fact that the only one worthy and able to do for us what we could not do for ourselves came and did just that. 
the perfect, sinless, spotless, only Son of God came to this earth, born of a virgin, clothed in human flesh, to shed His blood on a Roman cross to atone for our sins, the sins of the entire world. Why? To save us. Not just from hell or from our sin or even from ourselves, but to save us from the wrath of God that every single one of us deserves. He died on that cross, defeating death in the grave, and then he rose from the dead three days later, validating every claim he ever made about himself. You understand, people need to hear that story. Not just what he's done in your life, but the story of who he is and what he's done for this world. That's how you make disciples, by sharing his story. That's the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Okay? Making disciples means teaching people all about Jesus. It's sharing his story and then living your life in a way that demonstrates the reality of his story in yours. Right? And in fact, you cannot have one without the other and expect to be effective, an effective witness for Jesus Christ, because you can tell people about his story all day long, but if your actions don't reflect what you say you believe, then look, no one will take his story seriously. Yet at the same time, you can model his life to others and how you live your life in a very authentic way that is clearly obvious, clearly felt by the people you encounter, but if you do not couple that kind of living with the proclamation of the gospel. If you don't actually open your mouth and tell people about Jesus Christ, they won't magically come to know him on their own. You understand, there are many people from many different faiths all over the world who are very good moral people who don't follow Jesus Christ. Now, you actually have to tell them about him. You have to say it out loud. You have to share his story. You have to tell them that he's the reason you are the way that you are. He's the reason you live the way that you live, which is also why it's so important that the way you live reflects who you say you are, because the two go hand in hand. See, Jesus not only said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, John 13, 35. But he also said, go into all the world and what? Proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, Mark 16, 15. And the word proclaim in that verse, by the way, doesn't mean by your actions. In the ancient Greek, it's the word keruso. It's the same word that was used in ancient times to describe a herald or a public crier, the person in a town who would make public pronouncements. It was also used to describe those who would preach the gospel. So Jesus taught his followers to both live out the gospel and to preach the gospel because the two go hand in hand. That's how we share his story. Because the propagation of the gospel, the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's how we make disciples, which means all other good causes in this world are at best a means to that end and at worst, they're distractions to keep us from sharing his story. Yet when it comes to the gospel, why do we have to coax one another into sharing our faith with unbelievers? Why do we have to have 
programs in the church to get Christians to go out and spread the gospel. Right? Why is making disciples of Jesus Christ one of the hardest things to convince believers to do? It's because we've believed the lies of the enemy that distract us from doing what God put us here to do, that we're too busy. It is too much work, that it's too awkward to have those conversations, that it's not my place to tell someone else about my faith, that, that somehow I'm not up to the task. But you know this, right? If you're not actively sharing the story of the gospel with other people, as a matter of course in your daily life, as a part of your daily life, then you understand you are not doing what God put you on this earth to do. Yet it's such a simple and natural thing to do, right? Our coffee shops in this town, there's like 50 of them in our little town, right? Our coffee shops and restaurants and parks and walking trails are full of people who naturally gather all around our city. It is completely natural for us to go grab coffee or to go for a walk or to go hang out at a park or to have a meal with other people, right? This town was built for that. Of course, that's one of the reasons we love it, right? We, we naturally spend time with other people and where there's people, listen, there's conversation. And of course, we naturally talk about the things we've had some experience with, things we're confident to talk about, things like the weather, sports, politics, family, work, right? Whatever it is you're used to talking about, <clears throat> which is great, by the way. There's nothing wrong with any of that unless those other things become distractions that keep us from also talking about something else that we have experience with, namely Jesus Christ and his story. Now look, this doesn't have to be some kind of <clears throat> formal presentation. You don't have to stand up and preach a sermon. No, it's just a part of your natural conversation, sharing Jesus, who he is, what he came to do and will do for that person you're hanging out with. Listen, that conversation should be very natural for you, very authentic. <clears throat> Leonard Sweden, Frank Viola wrote, the strength of the church is not the strength of its institutions, but the authenticity of its witness. Listen, you can tell people his story without it getting weird. Do <laughs> you know that? You can tell the story, Jesus' story to other people without it getting weird. And here's why. Because his story is intertwined with your story. And that's where the power of your story comes in. Because the person you're with may not know Jesus, but they know you, right? And so as important as telling them about Jesus' life is, what will make his story real for them is when you tell them what he's done in your own life. Because they don't know him yet, but they know you, right? They don't trust him yet, but they trust you. They don't believe in him yet, but they believe in you. You see, your story is the link that connects lost people to the gospel. Your story is the link that connects lost people to the gospel. Now, 
Now who's more qualified, more capable, or more appropriate, or more deserving to share that story with them than you? Here's where it gets really good. Because when you combine the power of his story with the power of your story in a very natural way, there's something supernatural that happens. It's what John was describing when he said they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Because when you combine the truth of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished in this world with the testimony of who he is in you and what he's accomplished in your life. Listen, the enemy can no longer rely on the only trick that he has up his sleeve. Lies that are meant to distract you from what is true. Like what? Like the fact that you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, which means no matter how hard the accuser wants you to believe that you're worthless, you are made worthy in Christ. Like the fact that no matter how much he tries to remind you of your sin, you are made holy in Christ. Like the fact that no matter how much he wants you to get stuck in the past, you have a future in Christ. Right? Like the fact that no matter how broken you are, you're beautiful in Christ. No matter how rejected you feel, you're accepted in Christ. No matter how defeated you've been, you are more than a conqueror in Christ. No matter how much condemnation the accuser tries to heap on top of you, there is no condemnation in Christ, which means no matter how damaged you become, you are a new creation in Christ. And listen, the enemy knows all of that. Sometimes you just need to remind him that you know it too. That's the power of combining Jesus' story with your story because it's truth that the enemy cannot deny or refute when you proclaim that truth even over your own life. That's why James, the brother of Jesus, said, resist the devil and he will flee from you, James 4, 7, because the devil cannot withstand the proclamation of the truth, which is how you resist him, by the way, by speaking the truth. That's how Jesus resisted the enemy when he was tempted in the wilderness. He simply spoke the truth until the accuser left Jesus alone. And listen, if you can speak that truth over your own life, then you can speak that truth into other people's lives as well. And in fact, you have been given the authority to do so by Jesus himself. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Luke 10, 18 and 19. Based on the proclamation of the gospel, he said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16, 18 and 19. He said, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Matthew 18, 19. 
19 and 20. He said, these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Mark 16, 17 and 18. The apostle John said, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. First John 4, 4, James, the brother of Jesus, said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4, 7, the apostle Paul said, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Do you understand that you've been given a tremendous amount of authority, not only to live out the truth of the gospel, but also to speak that truth over your own life and into the lives of others as well. Look, whether or not they accept that truth, that isn't up to you. Whether or not they hear it, well, that is. And yet they're never going to hear it if we're too afraid to tell them. Charles Spurgeon once said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. So look, don't make telling people about Jesus the exception in your life because you don't feel qualified or or worthy or able. No, make it the rule. Make telling others the story about Jesus and what he's done in your own life as natural as talking about the weather. Knowing that there's no one more qualified or more worthy or more able to tell your story than you. That's the power of combining your story with his story. It shuts the mouth of the accuser because he cannot argue with the gospel and he cannot deny what it's done in your own life. I'm telling you, when you share with another person your story together with the gospel story, listen, it may seem hard at first. Surely there will be plenty of distractions in the beginning, but I promise you, if you stay with it, you will find that all of those distractions begin to fade away as the voice of the accuser is silenced and all that is left is you and a lost soul and the truth. And that is when a natural conversation turns into a supernatural event as the Spirit of Christ bears witness with his gospel and with your testimony and he shuts the mouth of the accuser and in that holy silence he begins to call to that lost soul. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Let's pray.